Hey everybody, and welcome back to the latest and greatest episode of Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America, the best podcast on American history out there. My name is Dylan Shear, and I'll be your host, I am your host, through this adventure in American history since the Civil War. Uh, today we're talking about the 90s. Of course, the 90s is known as a decade where Star Wars The Phantom Menace came out uh, in 1999. Talking about a couple of things today, talking about this new sort of idea called Third Way Politics. That came into the 90s, though really it's just sort of liberalism described in a new, you know, with a new code on uh, free trade, post-Cold War foreign policy, the information revolution, and terrorism in the United States. So a lot of things that we're covering today. Some major questions for this week's podcast episode. One, how did Clinton's politics differ from those of Reagan or H.W. Bush, right? On the last podcast, we talked about Reagan, and then we'll talk a little bit about H.W. Bush today. We talked about it last week as well. Secondly, uh, was the information revolution a new industrial revolution, or was it something else? Was it coming off of the industrial revolution? If you remember, most of this podcast, right, the thesis of this has been sort of that the industrial revolution was the most important thing in the United States since the Civil War. It sort of defined everything that's happened during it and then since then as well, right? Everything's just been sort of a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. Thirdly, we'll look at what spurred the rise of multiculturalism. And then finally, uh, we'll talk about which groups oppose new free trade agreements and why they oppose such things. Our first, our biography today uh, is... Once again, uh, less of a, of a person and more about an event, right? We're talking about Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ridge uh, famously was an 11-day standoff in 1992 between FBI agents, U.S. Marshals, and then on the other side, uh, white separatist supremacist Wandy Reaver and his family. Uh, that idea, right, both uh, that Randy Weaver believed that, you know, white people were the better than everyone else on, on Earth, right, and then also that white people in the United States should separate from the government, right, saying that the government was not for white people. Uh, Randy Weaver was not just sort of this lone wolf, right, that sort of idea gets thrown around with a lot of these people, that there are these lone wolf separatists, lone wolf white supremacists. That's not the case. Weaver was part of a much larger white supremacist community, one that we had been really building since uh, the end of the Vietnam War, which had radicalized and helped train a lot of these white separatists and supremacists. The reason why uh, the FBI and U.S. Marshals were interested in him is that uh, Randy Weaver had sold illegal sawed-off shotguns to an ATF agent earlier. Randy Weaver was a former U.S. Army engineer. That's where he received much of his training. This standoff uh, was occurring in a cabin where his he was living with a friend, uh, his wife, a dog, and, and his adopted son. Uh, Randy Weaver had refused to show up to his court date, uh, which brought in the Marshals, right, Marshals? Our, their job is to bring, basically bring people to court, and then his refusal to come with them called in the FBI as well. Uh, when the marshals and the FBI agents approached his cabin, Randy refused to come out. Uh, the standoff ensued. Ruby Ridge became a national news story. Ruby Ridge is the name of where the cabin was, the name of the land. White supremacists held vigils just below Ruby Ridge, right beneath uh, the police cordon. You can see people wearing literal swastika head, like armbands, uh, praying for Randy Weaver, right? These white supremacists who were part of his larger network. Uh, snipers, FBI snipers, killed Weaver's wife, Vicky, Vicky Weaver, uh, who was not charged with a crime, right? So that's, you know, going against a, Vicky Weaver might not have been a, a good person necessarily, but sort of the U.S. justice system 
does require her or should, you know, require her to, to go through a, a hearing, right? Not that she would just be shot shot dead by these people. Uh, so this sort of like, you know, looked really bad for the FBI as well. Uh, the standoff ended a week later uh, after Randy surrendered. Uh, this sort of emphasized, right, the more militarized nature of these sort of modern police forces, right? They, they have these sniper forces. They're, you know, holding siege for a week, basically, doing all this stuff that, you know, really is new for a lot of police forces, especially in the 90s. Uh, and it also sort of emphasized the, the rise of a white supremacist group across the United States, right? You have these two sort of things working together, going up at the same time, sort of building this new United States. So uh, this fall of Bush, uh, right? We talked about last week. H.W. Uh, Bush, with President after Reagan, basically just ran on being, you know, I'll just be an extension of Reagan, just doing his stuff again. Uh, but sort of a lot of bad things happened. The economy started tanking. Savings and loan scandal happened, and it wasn't just the economy though that sort of lowered H.W. Bush's uh, poll numbers. Right? People started. Uh, disliking him for other things. One, uh, the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. Two, sort of these bigger culture war ideas. And then the LA riots. So we'll go through all three of those. Clarence Thomas nomination hearings. Uh, Bush had nominated Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court during Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings. Uh, a law professor, Anita Hill, accused Clarence Thomas, credibly accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. However, uh, this wasn't sort of taken up. Many senators, both Democrats and Republicans, sort of cast aspersions on Anita Hill, right? Saying that they were baseless. This was like feminism gone wrong. She was out to destroy uh, Clarence Thomas, right? Uh, Thomas was eventually confirmed 52 to 48, becoming one of the most conservative judges in the Supreme Court's history. Uh, Biden really sort of led the charge against Anita Hill here, defending Clarence Thomas. Uh, sort of an awful, awful look. This came up in in his nomination campaign, but sort of was swept under the rug there. Uh, Many people at the time, sort of regardless of their thoughts on Thomas, saw Bush's selection of Clarence Thomas as sort of evidence he was a bad leader, right? How could he pick somebody so divisive? Also, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, recently linked via text messages to the January 6th uh, insurrection riots. Clarence Thomas himself, uh, sort of under scrutiny for accepting a lot of money from very rich conservative individuals recently as well. Uh, also, these sort of continued culture wars helped bring down Bush's sort of poll numbers, likability. Uh, so you get during this time, you get several conservative releasing conservatives releasing books on quote unquote the scourge of multiculturalism on college campuses, the the diversity myth, multiculturalism and political intolerance on campus by David O. Sachs and Peter Thiel is the most famous. Peter Thiel, known for uh, being sort of this venture capitalist today, uh, this very conservative venture capitalist doing a lot of stuff with like blood, young people's blood, very creepy. Also has a big data firm, Palantir, and helped shut down Gawker. Uh, you get Elizabeth Fox Genovese wrote the forward to that. Fox Genovese, uh, her story is pretty wild along with her husband. They're these very famous historians of slavery uh, who like became very, very conservative at the end of their careers, in the middle to the end of their careers, uh, sort of like saying that, you know, like siding with slave owners uh, in a lot of ways. It's a very odd switch for them. Uh, but you also get sort of these these books, right, would allege that professors sort of were undermining American values. 
should ring a lot of bells today, right? You still get those same talking points from conservatives all across the United States. Um, you also see conservatives accusing Bush of not doing enough to maintain quote-unquote traditional values. You also get liberals accusing him of undermining minority rights. And you see sort of both sides continue to, to get increasingly polarized in their beliefs, right? Sort of separating from that middle. That's not to say that that's bad, right? I, I clearly fall down on one side, uh, but that polarization was happening. And the third sort of thing that really put Bush under uh, after the economy, these culture wars and the Clarence Thomas hearings were the LA riots. On April 29th, 1992, a mostly white jury uh, acquitted four police officers who had been videotaped beating Rodney King. King had been fleeing from the officers uh, who were attempting to arrest him for drunk driving. The officers were charged uh, but found not guilty, right, of this beating. Uh, the city erupted in riots, right? It had been clear that, that King had been beat unnecessarily by these officers. And this sort of these this violence lasted for around six days. It was sort of televised across the country uh, twenty four on these new 24-7 cable channels, right? Sort of in the 90s and the late 80s, Ted Turner, people like that, sort of developed these 24-hour our news networks that basically gave people access to, to news 24-7 and they needed content, right? So this is a big thing. Uh, these riots left 53 people dead and did billions of dollars in damages, destroying much of South Central LA. Sort of for many people, right, this was a signal that the U.S. was spiraling out of control. Uh, sort of, it, you can read it in a couple ways, right? You see the more conservative people being like, this is a law and order, these sort of racist dog whistles, like look at what, you know, all these non-white people are doing to their own communities. And then on the other side, you have people saying, well, look, this is the only outlet people have for their rage and frustration against this system that is sort of keeping them impoverished. And sort of rising off that comes Bill Clinton, uh, who running, who ended up running against H.W. Uh, Bush in the elections after those riots. Uh, Clinton was the governor of Arkansas at the time, relatively unknown, uh, but soon became very popular. He won the Democratic primary pretty pretty easily, even after he admitted to cheating on his wife uh, during the New Hampshire primary. Sort of, he was very charismatic. People were able to overlook it, right? Say, oh, that's just old Bill Clinton. Uh, he's from the South, right? So people saw, hey, there's a Southern Democrat. Maybe we can get some votes that way. Uh, he ran on being in favor of the death penalty and also on welfare reform. Uh, he was able to take advantage of sort of third-party campaigns by Pat Buchanan and H. Ross Perot, who took away votes from H.W. Bush, as well as H.W. Bush sort of failing popularity. Uh, well, his welfare reform ideas were basically sort of means testing, right? Saying that we're not just going to give out money to everybody. You have to sort of do some steps to get that money from us. Uh, and basically, he sort of he ran on a Bill and Hillary campaign, right? Saying, look, it's not just going to be me being president. We'll also have Hillary being there as well. Uh, so what were some of Clinton's economic policies? Uh, free trade was sort of a big thing. He advocated for free trade agreements that would allow for tariff-free trading between the U.S. and other nations. I followed through on that. I uh, signed the North American Free Trade NAFTA agreement in 1993 and joined the World Trade Agreement in 1995. This was not really a, a loved, beloved by everybody. Unions, traditionally sort of very strong Democratic supporters, pushed back on things like NAFTA, arguing that it would move union jobs overseas. Uh, these unions were very correct. Uh, manufacturers quickly left sort of other countries, and you see massive losses for organized labor. Right, uh, because you don't, you see the lack of these tariffs. Companies no longer 
it wouldn't cost them as much to move overseas, right? So they did it for cheaper later, for lower environmental standards in these other countries with free trade agreements with the United States. You did see unemployment lower uh, and the GDP rose under Clinton, but many of the, these new jobs paid much less than these lost union jobs. And so you see the continued increase of the wealth gap in the United States. Uh, Clinton also did some other economic things, not just NAFTA, lowered some of the U.S.'s massive Reagan-era budget deficit uh, via two ways. One were increased taxes on the wealthy. The other one was curtailing government spending. Uh, that curtailed government spending was largely cutting social services under the guise of sort of welfare reform, right? Basically doing these means testings or lowering the, raising the limits for who could get stuff. So, you know, making people have to have a, a job to be able to get access to certain things. Or, you know, if you make $21,000 instead of $20,000, you get a lot lower food stamps, that sort of stuff, right? So really cut the amount of, of money that the U.S. was giving people, sort of decimated uh, social services in a lot of ways. Clinton's foreign policy as well uh, was sort of a change, right? Especially because it's now this post-Cold War era. You see the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? You know, the Cold War has been declared over. So how you have to rearrange what Cold War, what sort of the U.S.'s foreign policy looked like, right? Since World War II, U.S.'s foreign policy had been so sorely, so squarely focused on the Cold War, now that that was no longer there, what would happen? People wondered, would he, you know, bring the U.S. back? Would he sort of leave the international sphere? What would he do? Uh, he didn't leave the international sphere at all. He uh, Clinton supported U.N. peacekeeping missions for the most part, uh, but did remove U.S. troops in Somalia when they came under attack, chose not to intervene during the Rwandan genocide, uh, but did commit U.S. troops in Serbia to try and stop Slobodan Milosevic, right? So the sort of wavering sort of thing. You're not quite sure if he's going to really uh, bring people in there or bring them back. It's sort of a bit of a wavering up and down foreign policy. Uh, on the campaign trail, sort of some more domestic stuff here. Clinton had sort of promised to end a ban on homosexuals serving in the military, right? So ending, uh, there was a ban on, on gay, gay men serving in the, the military and did that, right? When he entered office, he ended that ban. Uh, but this was unpopular with many conservatives and military leaders. And so Clinton backtracked instead by sort of overturning what he had just done and instead instituted a don't ask, don't tell policy, uh, which continued to allow the military to remove gay people from its ranks, but couldn't ask people if they were gay, right? No one liked this compromise at all. Conservatives really hated it because now they're like, they're secret gay people in the military. And gay people obviously don't like it because they want to be, you know, be themselves and serve out in the open. Uh, but Don't Ask, Don't Tell lasted for a long time. But Clinton didn't. Uh, Clinton also had other defeats, right? Healthcare reform. He he sort of ran on healthcare reform, right? That was sort of Hillary Clinton's thing uh, that she was going to be in charge of healthcare reform. Uh, that was a huge defeat for the Clintons. Hillary Clinton headed up this task force, right? Their proposal uh, included a mandate that required businesses to offer health insurance. This was met with resistance from businesses across the United States who didn't want to pay those extra charges, as well as the ADA. Uh, you see Republicans and other interest groups start this massive propaganda campaign against the bill. And in the face of that pressure, right, instead of sort of pushing it through, the Democrats gave it up on August 1994, stalling any attempts at health care reform until Obama came into office. And the sort of Republicans took their defeat of this uh, of this health care reform, right, in stride. They sort of used it to push forward 
uh, House Minority Leader at the time, Newt Gingrich, sort of united Republicans under what he called the Contract with America Pledge, right? It's called for looser environmental regulations, decreased government social spending, even more cuts than what Clinton had already done, and sort of more military spending. Uh, Republicans gained on the back of this. Republicans gained majorities in both the House and the Senate, which Clinton will have to deal with for the rest of his two terms. But sort of uh, Gingrich wasn't able to win out in the end over Clinton. Clinton's sort of third way uh, politics is what he called it, right? This idea that, you know, basically Republican economics, Democrats, social stuff, though clearly uh, willing to, to bend on the on the social stuff. Gingrich tried to sort of pass his proposals, right, and even with control of the House and the Senate, but he could not do it. Most of them failed in the Senate or were vetoed by Clinton, and they didn't have enough numbers to override Clinton's veto. Uh, In response, Gingrich shut down the federal government, sort of refusing to pass a budget to pressure Clinton to sort of pass this stuff. But the public turned against Gingrich. And after three weeks, he gave up the fight. Clinton's numbers soared. And you sort of see this continued right fight over budgets and shutting down the government in future eras, right? Especially today, that's a very common threat or very common tactic uh, for people in the government to try to shut it down, though it can often backfire. So once again, in 1996, right after his first four years, Clinton ran once again as a sort of third way centrist type thing. Uh, He agreed to sign Republican limits on welfare, which sort of helped his poll numbers. He ran against Bob Dole and easily defeated Dole. Uh, He was the first Democrat since FDR to win two elections, right? If you remember, LBJ served sort of over four years, but only uh, ran for office once. He dropped out, and then Carter got destroyed uh, as well, and Kennedy was assassinated. I think that's all the Democrats since FDR. Truman didn't run for a second term. Um, the economy grows after after his election, right? You sort of see a rebounding sort of from that H.W. Bush era recession. Sort of largely this was due to new information technology developments. You see sort of this big growth of new infrastructure uh, that needs a lot of people to help build it. So you see low levels of employment, uh, higher GDP growth, and sort of low inflation, all helping Clinton's numbers. The stock market continues to grow as well after dipping down under H.W. Bush. Uh, There's a lot of reasons for why the economy was growing, but at the time, many people credited this idea of having a Democratic president and Republican Congress saying that it sort of prevented either side from being too drastic, right? I think that's a lot of BS, but that's how people at the time thought, and that's a lot of people still think today. Alan Greenspan, sort of that was the head of the Federal Reserve, one of these finance ghouls, uh, was seen as a hero by a lot of people at the time, eventually ended up getting you know, a bunch of medals from like Bush, from Baby Bush and stuff. Uh, but these new internet information technologies were really sort of a driver of a lot of this new economic growth. You see cell phones and personal computers entering the markets, right, providing new jobs for them, new IT jobs in a lot of places, and then new markets as well, right? The growth of the cell phones, the growth of personal home computer markets. The internet, too, also is this big, massive driver of economic change. Some people saw, if you read books by like Neil Stephenson and stuff, uh, see, saw the internet as like this new future technology that could potentially revolutionize the world, make it equal for all. It didn't end up being the case, or at least has not been the case yet. But 
it did largely emerge as a commercial tool in the 90s, sort of with along with the development of cheaper personal computers. Prior to that, the internet had existed. It was largely a government, military, and university tool prior to that. It had been sort of developed as this communication tool between uh, universities uh, via government funding, right? That's how, you know, Al Gore claimed that he had helped create the internet is that he had signed bills that had funded it. Uh, the internet would change not only the economy at the time, but also culture and sort of the way people interacted with society. Along with the internet, you also see satellite TV sort of changing the way people consume news with the advent of these 24-7 cable news networks and then the availability of information on the internet. You see magazine and newspaper subscriptions begin to drop precipitously in the 90s, which continues to this day. You see local news companies begin to shutter, losing those sort of close ties to local news that had been there before. Now it's all these big national change that are sort of doing most of the journalism. Uh, you get 24-7 cable news networks, right? CNN. CNN was the first 24-hour news network. Sort of, And a lot of these news networks were like shaped by ideological bents, right? So sort of increasing polarization uh, in both parties, right? You know, if you're a conservative, you watch Fox News, right? If you're a... a Liberal, you watch MSNBC, right? Sort of, you know, you get these these bubbles uh, begin to grow and grow and grow. Uh, in some ways, these these news companies, the internet, did increase information access to information, dem- democratizing the news. But in a lot of cases, it was sort of just controlled by a couple companies, right? Who are d- controlling who g- who gets the news and then what type of news they get. Uh, because, you know, this information revolution, and I, I know that to some people I might sound like a crackpot here, but this is literally, I can like, you know, this is true. This is fact-based stuff here. Uh, you, you see a huge number of corporate mergers occurring in the 90s. Uh, you see television companies sort of merging with music, internet, phone, and cable companies trying to provide uh, their media to all markets, right? Uh, This was allowed by Congress in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which did away with a lot of the regulations that had prohibited this before in telecommunications companies. So you see Disney buying ABC, America Online, AOL buying Turner Broadcasting, Viacom, you know, buying MTV, Time Warner buying CNN, all this stuff, right? So you have these sort of like six big conglomerates owning a whole bunch of media properties without people necessarily knowing that. So most Americans, right, really no matter where they got their information from mainstream sources, got it from a decreasing number of of multinational corporations, right? So you have fewer and fewer people controlling uh, the news, basically. Along with this, right, you see something sort of going with it hand in hand is, is what's called globalization in a lot of ways. This was spurred, right, by this consolidation, by this information age, these free trade agreements, this sort of, you know, Thomas Friedman, my bet noir author in the New York Times wrote the the world is flat, right? I sort of helped coin this term globalization. Uh, the meaning of what that means is sort of really contentious, but I think it's best sort of understood. One, as a loosening of restrictions to make corp- international trade easier and the growth of multinational corporations. So that's corporations that have big presences in multiple countries and continents. Basically, it sort of means that companies will sort of move the centers of production to where they can find the cheapest labor and looser environmental regulations. So, you know, you see the growth of people now are, you know, Nike shoes made in China, 
packed in India, shipped, you know, and the labels are designed in the United States and then they're they're sold all over the world, right? And it's now cheap enough that you can, you know, do one part here, do one part here, one part here, and then bring it all together somewhere else and then sell it in a fifth place, right? That's sort of what globalization is best understood at. And that sort of rose in the 90s. And with that, you see a lot of critiques of that, right? Not everyone is a fan of globalization. It leads to lower prices for Americans especially, but sort of people doing all that grunt work in these other countries in China are living horrible, horrible lives, and that's why we're getting these cheap things. Uh, in 1999, you see massive protests in Seattle during World Trade Organization meetings, WTO meetings. Basically, it was a mixture of labor unions uh, and then hippies, right? And despite these protests being very, very peaceful, police cracked down on the protesters, injuring a number of people, became known as the Battle of Seattle. You can see people just sort of sitting down, protesting, being pepper sprayed by police. Police are coming in, beating these violent, these nonviolent protesters. Uh, and these protesters are protesting companies like Nike's uh, for the use of sweatshops and then unions as well, protesting against these changes, sort of which were direct, directly leading to job losses. The 90s also saw more battles over immigration in the United States, battles which continue to today. Uh, little was done about it, basically. In 2000, you see Latinx people becoming the biggest minority groups in the United, in the United States, sort of sparking calls from the right to put a stop to immigration. While many on the left are sort of called for more humane immigration standards, easier access to citizenship in the United States. Quote unquote illegal immigration, right, became a Republican talking point, saying that Democrats were not doing enough to keep the border safe. Trump sort of, you know, reignited all of this in his first campaign and continues to talk about it today. Still a, a point over sort of tying aid to the Ukraine and other places. Uh, for border, border quote-unquote, security measures. Uh, Ruby Ridge was not the only sort of terror act in the United States. You also see other terrorism events in the United States occurring. Another big one was the Oklahoma City bombing, which happened in 1995. Timothy McVeigh, who was a Gulf War veteran, blew up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma. Uh, he killed 186 people, 19 of them children. Uh, 680 more were injured by this explosion. Oftentimes, uh, Timothy McVeigh is sort of portrayed as this quote-unquote lone wolf, uh, but research has come out that it's clear that he's part of this sort of larger white supremacist movement, that same movement that the people at Ruby Ridge were involved in, and it was provided aid and training uh, by these white supremacists for the Oklahoma City bombing. You also see the Waco raid on the Branch Davidians, that's David Koresh. Uh, and you see sort of increasing white supremacist hatred of the government at the time, right? These sort of white separatists. Uh, and this really showed just how broad sort of the white power militia movement was in the United States. Uh, there's other attacks, right, that might not be as well known. Uh, the, uh, the attack on James Byrd Jr. in 1998. Three white supremacists from Jasper, Texas, murdered the 40-year-old black man, uh, James Byrd Jr. James Byrd on June 7th. Uh, 1998 had been out, you know, spending the day hanging out with friends in Jasper uh, across the town from his apartment. As he was walking home, he was attacked um, by, by three attackers, Barry, Brewer, and King, who offered him a ride. Bird accepted. They, they were driving around. Uh, they'd been, these, these, the, his three, the three terrorists, the three white supremacists, had been driving around all day. And, and then they attacked him. Um, and, and this is sort of very intense, sorry. Uh, and they tied James Bird. Um, to, to the back of their truck and dragged him down the road 
uh, tied to the back of his truck for, for miles and kill, killing him in the process. Uh, his three killers sort of appeared to be radicalized in prison by a white power group. Two of them had uh, white power uh, tattoos. Uh, they also found copies of white power literature uh, throughout their shared apartment. Two uh, of Bird's killers were sentenced to death. Uh, one was executed in 2019, and the other is serving life in prison. Horribly, uh, Bird was alive for, for most of his lynching. Uh, you also see the, the terror attacks against Matthew Shepard on October 6, 1998. Uh, Matthew Shepard was a young gay man attacked and tortured by two men in Laramie, Wyoming. Uh, he died six days later as a result of this attack on October 12th. Uh, student at University of Wyoming at the time, just 21 years old. Allegedly, he had approached them in a bar, right? Obviously not a reason to kill anybody. Uh, and it wasn't until 2009 that Congress passed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act, uh, which expands what crimes can be considered hate crimes. There's also the Columbine attacks, which occurred in 1999, April 20th. Uh, when two high school students killed 13 students and one teacher before killing themselves. Uh, this spawned a number of uh, copycat shootings. Uh, the number of shootings, school shootings, has only increased since Columbine, and then only even more so since the federal assault weapons ban expired in 2004. This Columbine sort of attack right inspired massive calls for changes in gun laws, but you saw none really put into place. Uh, the 90s sort of ended, uh, not ended, but begin to end with Clinton's impeachment uh, in 1998 after a special investigation. Republicans who had control of the House uh, impeached Clinton, right? Uh, even after they lost seats uh, in the House, they were still able to do so. Like they, they, the election happened, the Republicans lost their seats, right? But when you lose an election, you don't lose your seat immediately. Uh, and so the Republicans who had lost their seats, uh, even after that, they impeached Clinton. Uh, the Senate held a trial about this, uh, right? And sort of the, the, the reason they impeached him was uh, because of his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, they, the impeachment was not over the affair, but over Clinton lying about it. The Senate held a trial, uh, and after sort of a lengthy trial, uh, voted almost along straight party lines not to convict Clinton. And so Clinton avoided losing his seat and completed his term in office. Horribly, Monica Lewinsky, um, the sort of very young intern, uh, right, sort of with the president, uh, the power imbalance there is tremendous, uh, received an overwhelming amount, overwhelming amount of abuse. Uh, and retired from the public eye for a long time, became the butt of horrible jokes on a lot of these late-night shows. Uh, so the 90s end with the 2000 election. George W. Bush, who was the son of H.W. Bush, governor of Texas, ran against Al Gore, who was uh, Clinton's vice president. This is really one of the first um, presidential elections I remember. I was alive for the 96 and 92 elections, but I don't really remember them other than, you know, knowing that Clinton was president. Uh, this is the first one I remember. At the time, no one was particularly enthusiastic about really either candidate. Uh, you know, I wasn't a big gore guy, but uh, only 50% of people in the United States voted. Many states sort of came down to slim margins as a result of that. Famously, Gore won the popular vote by over half a million votes. Uh, but despite that, uh, Gore lost. Cable news networks, right, these new 24-7 cable news networks called the race for Bush, despite the Florida returns not being fully in. And remember, cable news networks do not get to decide what the vote is. Uh, they were calling it before then and sort of 
as a result of how the Electoral College works, whoever won Florida would win the election. Florida law at the time called for recounts uh, that ended up in elections this close, right? When the numbers were this close, Florida law required elections. Bush supporters physically entered polling places and stopped these recounts in a number of instances, sort of very well recorded. Uh, There were also worries that Florida Governor Jeb Bush, brother of George Bush, uh, was using his power to influence the election. The Supreme Court, uh, at that time, was mostly H.W. Bush and Reagan appointees, halted Florida's recount, given the election to baby Bush, right? And sort of said, okay, this is what it is. You don't have to do the recount anymore. Uh, Gore refused to push back against this ruling, to me, clearly unconstitutional ruling, a constitutional ruling, uh, clearly just sort of the Supreme Court did not need to be there, uh, and allowed sort of the Supreme Court to decide the next president of the United States. So some conclusions here, uh, the 90s saw an increase in globalization, increase in free trade, beginning of free trade, and this sort of media consolidation, consolidation of um, sort of corporate consolidation. You see union membership uh, decreasing, union activity decreasing, and the wealth gap continuing to increase, increase. Uh, you see the internet, other infotech advances sort of changing the economy and society in sort of big ways, ways that aren't sort of fully realized yet. And then you see homegrown white supremacist terrorism really tearing the country apart, showing that racism was still a strong and powerful force in the United States. All right, that's it for today. Next time we'll talk about the 2000s and beyond, but have a great rest of your day.